0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: This This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, direct to consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that.
2: And welcome to another episode of Soccer Supernova with me, Amy Canavan. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the journalist, commentator, and former general manager of Celtic, Jock Brown. Jock, thanks so much for joining us. How are you?
3: Pleasure. Good afternoon. I'm very well, thank
2: you. Um we're coming to you, I'll just, just kick off um nice and early. We're coming to you on a Champions League day. Um and it's been a long time since we've seen a Scottish side in a Champions League um sort of format. Obviously, we've got Rangers about in, in Europa League, I think they've got Antwerp on on Thursday. Um, you started off your career, you were a journalist and a commentator back in times where Aberdeen were making European finals, Dundee United, Celtic, Rangers. Um, obviously, financially, that's the the biggest reason why we're not quite competing. But what what do you think are the other factors that the the Scottish clubs just quite are quite are not making that mark? Uh, is it youth? What what do you think it is?
3: it's a, a very complex question that and a lot, of, a lot of consideration before you could come up with a real answer but um, resources are obviously huge uh, they can't get the same resources in Scotland because of the TD money being so uh, much below what you get uh, particularly in England but also elsewhere so retaining uh, top players here is very difficult and without top players, especially now it's all international You know, players are coming from all over the place when Aberdeen were doing it, they did it with eleven Scots. And when Dundee United were doing it, they did it with eleven Scots. Uh, Celtic, when they won the European Cup, with eleven Scots. Um, that just can't happen anymore. Uh, so unless you can find the resources to recruit uh, top international players and keep them here, it's going to be very difficult.
2: Do you think that is um, an issue? Uh, the, re- the recruitment. What uh, you just need to look at, like a scenario like Celtic right now. Something's not quite going right. Um, do you think is, that, is that a director of football sort of position needs to come in, or uh, development? Where, where's where's going wrong?
3: Well, if you're talking about uh, clubs here, um, there are two aspects to uh, getting a really top-class team together. And one is recruitment, obviously, and that's that is obviously challenged by the points I've just been making about the difficulty in terms of resources and money. Uh, and the second aspect is uh, a strong academy. And I think we've studiously failed in Scotland on that topic for a long time. And that's a really big worry. It's a huge worry, I think, because if you compare what happens in this country to what happens IAX, for instance, um, there's no comparison whatsoever. Um, and there must be reasons for that. And uh, I think these should be seriously examined. Um, and we should come up some answers to that. Because we're always going to be facing the problem about... Uh, financial resources to recruit the top players that's always going to be the case uh, and uh, my hope would have been in all honesty for uh, Celtic and probably Rangers both clubs to get into the English Premier League and then they would seriously compete but uh, uh, that's not going to be an easy task
2: Do you reckon that could have happened? Were you were you quite an advocate for that?
3: I'm entirely in favour of that, I mean I, I think uh, I think there's been a an opportunity missed uh, is particularly with Celtic over the past uh, 10 years when they were operating in a one horse race um, and seemed to be quite happy to win the league every year and uh, and just uh, clean up all the trophies in Scotland but without ever making a serious mark in Europe um, and I think there was an opportunity in the early uh, part of the decade uh, uh, for Celtic to say, right, we've got no competition in Scotland, we can win the league when we like at the moment, because Rangers are, have imploded. Um, so um, we will now try to become top class and uh, make a big impact in Europe. Um, and by so doing, they may well have attracted the English to say, why can we have this powerhouse, this European elite powerhouse north of the border, not being involved in our games every week because because we would, because Celtic for instance and Rangers if they were any good would, would add to um, the attraction of the English Premier League uh, and make it an even more attractive proposition uh, you can't say that Celtic and Rangers would not be more attractive say than Watford and Fulham and Norwich with great respect to them um, and uh, it would make it an extremely powerful setup. up now that might have become a possibility if Celtic had become a European powerhouse but unfortunately they haven't
2: Talking just about European powerhouses, what's your view then on that um, the dubious sort of inter and um, intercontinental European Super League sort of thing? What, what do you think about that?
3: Well, I'm not sure what the details of that are, so I, it's hard for me to give an opinion on it. I really don't know how they, they propose to set it up properly. But I don't it's think they do. About the big clubs—they're trying to make more money. That's all it's about, isn't it? They're all trying to make more money. Uh, I'm much more interested actually in the, in the, the quality of the game being improved um, than big clubs making more money um, and I'm not sure it would achieve that.
2: Just uh, your touch on there, it's about quality of game. When you started out as a, as a commentator back in, in the 80s, and, and that, do you reckon the standard uh, game was, was better then? Because that, that's a massive um, – there's there's, it's a whole different ball game, it really is. But what would you – Did you prefer the sort of the arena that you walked into to to compare to now?
3: Well, I would argue that the games were were better then; Um, they were more exciting and they were a bit more competitive. I'm not saying the quality was better. I I wouldn't say that necessarily because it seems to me impossible to say that football has not improved because every other sport that you can measure, measure, any sport you can measure, it's better now than it was then. So, for instance, if you say what's the world record for 100 metres and what's the world record for a mile and what are the swimming records? Every record that you you actually say, there's the the time, there's the record. Time now. We have all improved. And what is undoubtedly better now about football is the fitness levels. The players are fitter and stronger, um, generally quicker. So from that point of view, there's been an improvement. So what I would argue is the team, the good team of today would beat the good team of yesteryear for these reasons. But in terms of being an attractive proposition, I don't think it's come on so much because when you watched uh, any games in the early 80s, well, in the early 80s, in fairness, uh, Rangers were were pretty poor, uh, really, and Celtic weren't that dominant. So Dundee, United, and Aberdeen made a big impact. But there were other good teams as well. I mean, mean, Hearts were decent, Hibs were decent, Motherwell were decent. Um, whereas at the moment it's been uh, what well, it has been a one horse race it's become a two horse race
2: Absolutely um, we'll just move on slightly you sort of get thrown into the deep end you're short, shifted away from that broadcasting, journalistic side of things and you're offered the general manager position under Fergus McCann at Celtic what attracted mm-hmm. you to that role? Um, the, the job description, you don't really see that sort of role kicking about these days um, what hooked you?
3: Um, I think intrigue really about whether or not it could be achieved, uh, uh, and what got me into it more than forget journalistic and broadcasting. What really led me into it was the law. The law. My background in the law, um, and uh, I was quite intrigued to see whether it could work. It took massive persuasion for me to try and do it. I mean, and I realised as I was doing it on the back of the job description, it couldn't last more than two years at the top uh, because of the way it was structured. Uh, I knew that going into it and I thought well either i go in and try and change the structure of the job which I did try to do and failed um, because Fergus wouldn't have it uh, or I knew I'd be, uh, I wouldn't last more than two years uh, so that was a big thought because after that you say well you've done two years of that and you come back out um, where will your career go from there and that was a big, a big uncertain factor but it was it became irresistible in the sense of having to have a go at it
2: you touch on there obviously um, I think you went down to Cambridge for law didn't you um, that's yes. sort of what um, that was That was obviously the, the massive connection to, to going into a role like this but it eventually sort of transpired that you were kind of like a middleman between the club and the press do you think Fergus was looking more at, at the, the broadcasting history the journalism history that that was maybe why or No,
3: no I wasn't no? interested in that not, not remotely, no I had no interest in the press at all, <laughs> no, none whatsoever uh, and the middleman job for me was not uh, really the press up. wasn't the, the the thing that interested him most. Uh, what I was, he was keen to do was have a middleman between uh, him and the board and the management, the club management. Uh, that was more what he was interested in, and that was the biggest element of the job. Actually, was to was to try and bridge that gap because uh, that, he 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 saw that as being a huge feeling. That's why he insisted in heading. Uh, head coach for the manager you wouldn't have manager anymore because he's not a manager the head coach uh, and the, man- the manager title was given to me um, the general manager title um, so I was in charge of the football uh, with, in all respects except technically except picking the team and the tactics and, and all that sort of stuff but in every other aspect uh, the management of it was was to be down to me so the the middleman, but uh, he just the big thing about the press was he didn't want the manager or the co- head coach being the main conduit to the press because he thought that historically had proved to be very difficult because it meant that the the manager was perhaps tempted to look after himself rather than the club. Um, Ferris didn't want to know about doing it himself and he didn't want any involvement in that. Um, so my part of my role was under to try and be uh, the voice piece to the media, which I tried to resist. I said at the time that wouldn't work because the press will not entertain anybody who's not picking the team mm-hmm. uh, and they'll have a go at the guy who's not picking the team and I proved to be right on that.
2: How did, um, obviously, uh, uh, one of your first roles was then getting vim Janssen in. How did he take to that? Obviously, he was not the one really answering to the press and it, it was yourself.
3: No, he was absolutely overjoyed at that. I mean, that was a huge attraction to him. He had no interest whatsoever um, in dealing with the press at all. And we had to persuade him he had to do a pre-match and a post-match interview. It's contractually a never to do that. Uh, he had no desire of any kind to have any connection at all with, uh, with the media. Um, so he bought into that completely. And the tragedy was that when things started to go awry uh, towards the end of his time, um, he then decided they became his best pals, you know, so that, that was quite a difficult time.
2: Um, we've touched on it, obviously, like, you come straight in and it's getting them Janssen in. You also sort of came right in the fury of, um, I think I think it's Fergus McCann, called them the Three Amigos. I think Pierre van Hooydonk had already, I think that deal had been done by the time you were in, hasn't it? And then it was De and Cadet. Was there no chance they were staying?
3: Well no I, I do to do with Van no, Hoy i, don't, I don't do him at all, nothing at all about him. Um uh, the cadet was most certainly a candidate to stay. In fact he, I went to see him in Portugal and he, he agreed he would definitely stay and, and agreed in agreed to terms of a four year contract. Um and it was Scupperby's wife. It wasn't it wasn't anything to do with him. He was he was all for it. Um, and that was a major disappointment to me because it's a very nice man, I liked him. Um, and uh, uh, I left Portugal after spending a day with him, um, with uh, an undertaking that he would that he would uh, come and join us uh, and sign the four year contract. And it was a question of when he was flying in, and I came off the plane with the club doc, Jack Mulhern, who was a big pal of uh, cadets, who were great, very close. Uh, he went with me um, and Jack and I came off the flight um, and uh, my phone was going nuts and about a four answer machines, uh, four answer maybe voicemails and it was George Cadet um, telling me a very, in a very emotional way that he wasn't able to come because um, he'd just been talking to his wife so the deal was off so we left with the deal on and arrived in Glasgow the deal was off.
2: God, Larson and Cadet that'd have been something. eh?
3: That's what I thought, yeah.
2: <laughs> that was gonna be so, the dream. Um and then I'm taking obviously I think everybody sort of knows the caneos wasn't quite so uh, emotional as that.
3: Eh, no, no, it's as but as I was concerned no. It's cold and clinical for me, you know. It's just I mean, just it was I mean the cane just shake my head, that's all I can do with that really.
2: <laughs> there we go. Um so like you say Vim, Vim comes in, Vim Janssen, um, and nowadays it's not. It's sort of. I, I'm obviously. I'm a, I'm a student journalist, and I can't really quite imagine uh, a club of a magnitude like Celtic managing to keep uh, a manager and a, an announcement of a manager quite so underwrapped, like like Hughes did. Was Was that always the intention? Obviously, that there, there has to be a bit of pride in that.
3: Well, yeah, there, there, there was. Funny enough, there was some pride in that, and that was a big mistake. Um, it was a huge mistake, and it happened twice because we brought in Joseph Inglis uh, uh, again, with nobody knowing. And uh, it, was, it was one of the one of the problems for me was that part of my brief was to cut all the leaks out of Celtic Park. Now, uh, yeah, you're obviously too young to have been around then, but I can tell you before uh, before I went there and through the. 80s and 90s, it was a joke in the world of football that everything leaked out of Celtic a sieve. the directors would have to pick up a tabloid to find out what was going on because it was being the tabloids before the year uh, and it had, become, it had become a standing joke really in, in the world of football in Scotland and one of the things the board at that time was determined to do was stop that and uh, I was charged with the task of stopping it Um and when, I told, when they told me that I said well I know how to do that, I think I can do that I think you can, however there'll be a price to pay huge price to pay and I'll be the one paying it because as soon as the press discover why the leaks are no longer effective they'll identify the reason for that namely me and I'll go under attack and that's exactly what happened and it was the success in stopping the leaks which I think had the biggest impact on me being attacked so relentlessly. So we, brought, we just brought um, Janssen, nobody knew, nobody knew who was coming in the door for the press conference. Nobody had a clue who was coming in the door. Um, and I mean, every paper was speculating. One even printed on the front page a picture of a man I had never heard of and said, this is the new Celtic manager. Um, and that must have been very embarrassing for those who are doing it. And of course, the fact that I was not helping them to identify, meant I was not a very popular man. Um, so in terms of stopping leaks, we were very successful and we retained that success for a long time after I left. I mean, the systems were in place whereby it was still a lot better. But what we learned quite clearly was that um, if you're introducing a, a new co-head coach or manager as it is nowadays, uh, without anybody knowing, he's going to get battered as well. Unless he's a huge name, he's going to get hammered because they didn't know who he was. Um, An example for that is quite clear because at one point in the second time I was involved in the recruitment of our coach, our head coach was uh, when Joseph Engloss came. Well, before that, the speculation was going nuts as well, the usual way, um, and I was spotted talking to Gerard Houllier I did talk to Gerard Hulli. Uh And uh, I was in Paris, actually. Now, I came back from Paris. I'd met him in Paris. And uh, they started printing. The first thing that was printed about him was, this is, the, this is going to be the new manager, and he was the guy who failed to qualify for France in 94 because they lost a game against Bulgaria something at the last minute. The last five minutes they lost a the game. So what an idiot he was. But they then started to look into him more and when they did that for two weeks two weeks later he was a superstar and then he didn't arrive so i'm an idiot for not getting him now i can tell you the first conversation i had with gerard huley he showed me his contract to go to liverpool um i, I was quite clear he was going to liverpool um and that was all that had all been done um so there's never any question of coming Badly because I think he would have been a he would have been a great guy to get if we could have got him. Um, but that was what he would be for a fortnight. Starting from nowhere, starting to be an idiot, he became a superstar in a fortnight. So when Joseph Englands came in, he just became an idiot. When you arrived right, first day we didn't know who he was because we didn't know who he was.
2: Blank check. And if, like, you say, if you, you look into that, um, and obviously he's, sad, he's sadly no longer with us. But I think I think I've read it that Hool-Aid, um he sort of styled the model of France, what Venglos did at Czechoslovakia. So again, it's just one of those, if you do a bit of research and, um, but it's just that it's, it's a tough world out there in the press. Uh, well, as in a mean world, as in a mean world, not, not a tough job for them. Yeah. You just, like you say, a well, bit of well, research.
3: What's the most interesting about it, I think, is if you look at the circulation of tabloids today as it was compared to what it was then, it's quite interesting, it plummeted so Absolutely. People that want don't
2: want They don't want us though. Going back, just um, sc- go, stepping a little bit back to to that first season when uh, under Vim, um, that was a massive success, as you said, keeping him under wraps. Obviously, you had, you were involved in quite a few um, success stories in in that time. Obviously, Larson' his success is, is undeniable. But you look at. Um, Obviously, there was a little bit of controversy around Paul Lambert, um, but I think, even before you were sort of there. But you look at the likes of Craig Burley coming in. There was a few others. Um, Darren Jackson. Um, and then another one, you saw, you're you drawing comparisons to what's going wrong at Celtic right now, and that's the goalkeeper situation. You look at the goalkeeper that you brought in from from Bradford under Chris Kamara and Jonathan Gould. That is one of the greatest successes of that team. And I'm even aware of that. And that, that team is before my time. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's right, it was. That was, a, it was a, a, a real stroke of good fortune, Jonathan Gould. And he came in as number three goalkeeper. As we arrived, he was coming in as number three. He only came in because uh, Gordon Marshall and Stuart Kerr were injured. Uh, and we were concerned. Um, we knew it would be obviously Gordon Marshall would be fit very quickly, but the Stuart had a longer term injury. So we're really light, and we had to get that goalkeeper in for the European deadline, I remember. Because I, I, I mean, I actually first.
0: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all, every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
3: Go to join the gold on the training ground at Bradford. Um, and uh, then well, we got manager first Chris Kamara first and um, agreed the deal and then got Jonathan on the phone and said just just leave there right now get in your car and drive to Glasgow for a medical um, and we had to sign him at five o'clock in the afternoon um, and we did uh, and, uh, but he was coming in as a backup there's no doubt about that he was going to be a backup goalkeeper because Gordon Marshall a very experienced good goalkeeper Stuart Kerr was an outstanding young goalkeeper um, and Jonathan came in because we were, we were light, uh, and uh, and then of course got his chance and took it. it was open arms, he was terrific. That's so not a good guy, which, that's another aspect that's very important. when You bring people in. If you bring in a really good guy, you know, yeah. and and most of the guys that we brought in that season fit in that category, uh, and it makes an awful difference if we, if you we get the right type of guy in the dressing room.
2: So we're talking about that dressing r- room. Obviously, the dressing room that stopped the ten. When that happens, when that moment happens, what are the feelings? Obviously, there's a bit of pride. Is there a bit of relief? Um, well, what was it like well, for you? About, Sorry, when what, what, so winning the what, league, stopping, stopping 10, the ten. Yep, yep.
3: Well, I know I was overjoyed at that, but and I, and I, and I was massively relieved, uh, and I also knew it'd be the kiss of death for me. That was that was inevitable. Uh, because it was quite clear that uh, if we won the league, um, the way it was all portrayed in the press, that we all down to Vim. Um, and 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 I also knew I also knew that Vim was leaving. I knew he was leaving okay. without any doubt whatsoever. I knew he was going, um, and I knew when that happened, if he'd won the league as we happily did. Um, And he then left, then I would carry the can for him leaving, which was not fair or right, it wasn't even true, uh, because he was never staying, no matter what.
2: So... Vim Leaves, obviously, we spoke about uh, Joseph Englos coming in. Under him, one of the biggest successes as well, we're, we've mentioned these names that you, you've been a part of, Larson, Lambert, Burley, um, Goul- yeah, Jonathan Gould, sorry, Lubomir Miravchik. How much did you have to play in that?
3: Oh, that's that's the happiest story of all. That's the best of the lot, that one. It's absolutely terrific. Um, that was that was Celtic signed Dud Check. was the Back page of one. Hey, that's of the, the one. Us. Yep. Um, yeah, that's right. And uh, quoted his price at three hundred thousand. It wasn't. It was less. Um, and uh, ridiculed us for buying bringing him in. And he was just, uh, yeah, he was just sensational. Absolutely sensational.
2: Biggest, uh, biggest achievement for you? Uh, Signamize, obviously.
3: Olafson. Olafson. What you see the. The problem, the the, the aspect that, that affects me is both Laster and Maravich involved quite a lot of contractual issues and, and legal issues. Right, um, and uh, I was heavily involved in that, so they become my favourites for, for that reason because it was a, it was a minefield to get through to make these deals happen. Uh, and by the way, I didn't, I didn't, identify. By the player, I mean obviously we. Jim Jansen identified Larson, and uh, Joseph Ringlason uh, identified uh, Moravec. Um, but getting them was, was was difficult, uh, very complicated, uh, and uh, achieving that was uh, certainly makes me very happy. Yeah.
2: So you look back on your time in, in that role obviously you said yourself you knew it was going to be under two years um or two years maximum sorry what what were you, what are your overrides and now it's it's 20 odd years since since you've left how how do you look back on that time because like you say at the time the press are quite fickle um and you, you were you were painting sort of the the ma- the, uh, the bad man sort of thing um mm. what would what, what you how do you feel back on that now
3: well, I, I only look back at that with with, uh, with massive satisfaction. Uh, I mean, I, I ignore all that stuff. I mean, I ignore all that. Um, okay, it's, it's great now because you can go online and you can choose online what you want to read and what you don't want to read. But I don't do any social media. I'm not interested in that either. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, no, it's just, I look back at it with, with a lot of satisfaction and a lot of... Uh, Happiness, you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it hugely. I enjoyed the job massively, and I tell you, what was great about it was, you walked into Celtic Park every morning. There were about three hundred and fifty people worked at Celtic at the time, um, and uh, you walked into that place every morning, and it was a joy to do so because there was a host of terrific people working there, and the atmosphere inside was great. Um, it really was. Um, so it was, it was a terrific place to go every morning, um, and uh, I still get friendships arising from that uh, that I value hugely uh, so no I, I look at it I look back at it uh, very happily um, and I'm obviously delighted at the players who came in I mean I was involved I was involved 13 players came in during my time um, and uh, I, I was involved in 13 players coming in and um, in all honesty there wasn't a bad one and if you, you want to list all the names you could through all the names Everyone made a big contribution to Celtic, uh, and that, that makes me very happy. And, and some of them were, were complicated deals, you know, compl- difficult deals to do. Um, Larson was one uh, initially, and Maravchik was one, and, and Lambert was one uh, big time. It was a very difficult one to do. Um Mark Reaper was, wasn't the easiest to, to deal to do either.
1: Was
2: Lambert uh, Rath- because was of Dortmund? Compl- were, do- were Dortmund difficult? Were Dortmund <laughs> difficult?
3: Yeah, they didn't, they didn't. want him They didn't want him to leave. They didn't want him to go. And quite right, they were quite right. Not to want him to go. He's a great player. Absolutely. Um, so they were. They were doing all they could to prevent that, um, and that made it very difficult.
2: nice like, so We've not even mentioned Mark Reaper. I, I've just totally overshadowed that. What What a sign that was as well.
3: Yeah, that was that was interesting too. That was Harry Redknapp. That. That, <laughs> that was even more fun. Than Harry
2: Redknapp. <laughs> <laughs> Where did where did he, where did he where? come from then? Who? Who was that? Yeah. West Ham. Yeah, Reaper. West Ham, West Ham then. West Ham. I don't know that. Um, I don't know West that. West
3: Ham when he came to Celtic, yeah. There you go. Oh, back right. for goodness sake.
2: I mean, well, exactly. There they go. We're so Talking about the ten, we've not exactly. We've not even mentioned Brad back. Like you see, the list the list really could go on. Um, I think you made an interesting point there.
3: You, Mark Beduka, Mark Reset, Johan Melby.
2: All bad, of these guys as well. That's all right. God, you're not too bad, are you? Had an eye. Um quite a good list of terms. It's, a good list <laughs> it's not of
3: terms. too
2: bad. It's not too bad. I'd like to see some folk a lot better than that. You touched on it there and I think it's really interesting. Um you don't buy you don't buy newspapers now. do you think the press uh in that circulation was did you walk into it at a better time than right now?
3: I don't know. I'm not really too sure because I'm not too sure about the current situation. Um, because when I, when I was at, I stopped. I stopped looking at anything when I was there at Celtic. I mean, I was like, I was getting advised, of course. A very good, a very good uh, press man at, at Celtic at my time, Peter McLean, was first class, and Peter uh, always made sure I knew what I had to know. Um, but without reading the papers, I didn't need I didn't read anything. Um, and uh, he agreed that was a great idea uh, not for me not to read it and he would then brief me on what I needed to know um, and uh, that worked out that was, that was fine and I was, I was quite happy to go that route um, and, but I just got out of the habit at that time and I haven't picked it up since
2: there you go. Well, if you picked up the papers a while ago, you'd have seen that Scotland are going to the Euros of this summer. Um, the, last no, no, really. manager, <laughs> the last manager, obviously, to get us here was your brother, Craig Brown. Um, I've heard you say yourself, not many, I think the, the failures over the last 20 years is because there's not many managers that can make that shift from club manager to international manager. Now, obviously, Steve Clark has got us there. Do you do you see those qualities that, that, that I, I don't know what the details entail? What you mean, but do you see that in Clark?
3: Uh, I, 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 all I see in Clark, I like. I, I, I like what I see, but I don't know him at all. I really don't know, and I, I don't know what his qualities are. Uh, but his record's good. Um, he did very well at West Brom. He did very well at Kilmarnock, and he's done. He's done as well as we could. Expect uh, with Scotland, so I'm delighted about that. That's terrific, but I, I don't know him beyond all that. Um, and uh, when he played, he played the Scotland team not that often, actually. Uh, when he was at Chelsea, and I was I covered him when he played. I remember he played one the first first game. My brother was in charge, was in Rome, I think, Italy, and uh, Steve played, um, uh, but he didn't play a lot of games that happened at that time. Um, but uh, I don't know what he's called it. But what the point I make about that is club management and international management are totally different skills. Um, and it's not guaranteed that someone who can do one can do the other. Uh, and what is abundantly clear to me is that people at like Andy Roxburgh and my brother Craig have the international management skills. Uh, there's a detail involved in that uh, because the games are so few and the analysis of the opposition is so important and so it needs to be done so thoroughly. And the preparation of the the international team, the Scottish team, has is, is, is got to be done in a meticulous way. And these guys know how to do that. And they, they, they proved that. So uh, now that, these same skills don't work quite the same way at club level. It's not, not to say that you can't be good at both, but they're different skills. So the, the fact that... Uh, you've got a, a great club manager. I um, mean, I don't know, for instance, Bill Shankly was a legendary club manager. I've no idea whether he's going to be a good international manager. And if, if I were trying to find out before appointing him, say, you need to ask a lot of questions to find out all the things that were not that obvious to be sure that it would work. Um, so that, that's my thing about the two, the two jobs being a bit different. But Joaquin. you can do both. That's been proved. Yeah, well, yeah, you see, Stein was still a better club manager. Yeah, Definitely absolutely. He was a club manager than an international manager because an international manager, and by the way, I love Jockstein in every way. I mean, he was very good to me and I have nothing but high regard for him. Um, but I felt that international management wasn't the best thing he was suited to. It was a different kind of way of life. But remember, we had terrific players with Jockstein. Terrific was players. Terrific players. Uh, and yeah, we didn't do brilliantly, you know. We, yeah, we, we, uh, we certainly compared to what he did with the Celtic team, <laughs> which was just sensational. I mean, it was just incredible what he did with the Celtic team. But that was that was the everyday working with them. Um, and when you've an international thing and you've got long gaps, and you've got to fill these gaps pr- purposefully, um, and I don't think he was quite so well suited to that. Um, and I think that may apply to people like um, Shank we look at Reavy it leads with to England, and it just hadn't, it didn't work at all. It just didn't work. And um, there's been great examples of top club managers going to international management and not working. Um, and that's because I think different skills are required.
2: I was just um, just as you were saying that. I actually totally forgot. Uh, it just sprung my mind. Scotland camp. Tosh McKinley, when he went away in Scotland camp, crucial, the ten, how much were you involved between the, the, the bust-up between McKinley and Larson? Because he went away then on international yeah. duty, didn't he? I
3: was heavily involved, yeah. Absolutely, I was heavily involved in that. Yeah, absolutely.
2: By the way... Is it, it's, da, it's Darren Jackson who's top, came out and said... Top of the, what, Dan Jackson, sorry, that, that Tor, Darren Jackson? Sorry, <laughs> Darren Jackson came out and said that that made the difference, yeah, that, that made the ten...
3: Well, yeah, and, 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 and I would like to think, maybe I'm deluding myself, but I'd like to think the way it was handled contributed as well. Contribute. Because, because that was seriously difficult. Um, and uh, um, But it worked. Uh, there's no doubt that whatever that whatever was left to me to deal with it, and I had to deal with it. Uh, and uh, the outcome of it was a very happy outcome. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and you're talking, when you're talking about Tosh McKinney, you're talking about Henrik Larson, you're talking about two top guys and we added in Darren Jackson, you're talking about three top guys, all outstanding individual people um, and that made it possible because, I mean, you know, when, when Tosh and, and Henrik had the bust up, um, it was because they were both top human beings that it was possible to come out with a good outcome
2: absolutely that's terrific and then like you say you bring in darren jackson into the fold um and i think you mentioned it earlier as well jack Mulhern. it was he was integral um and in identifying his head injury wasn't he well,
3: during jack your time he's a, 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 a hero i mean and, and remains a hero he's a top guy jack Mulhern's Just uh, can't say enough good things about jack Mulhern. Uh but jack was uh, he was, my recollection is it was on the bus coming up to prepare for the game against it was an FC Tyrol I think in Winsbrook um, European match anyway and uh, on the bus uh, Darren went and asked him for a couple of paracetamol for a headache and Jack says Darren and I sit down there and let me look at you and they, um, examined him got all the story from him about what the, what the issue was, what the pain was and all that, and uh, said, you're not playing. And as of tomorrow morning, they're going to the hospital for a specialist examination. Um, and uh, he was right on the ball. And Dan was arguing, and he was saying, oh, I'm I've just got a headache, give me a couple of pills, I'm going to play. And uh, no, no, you're not playing. I, I recognise symptoms here that I don't like, and you're not, you're not going, you're not playing. Um so he was he was terrific Jack. And he was the following morning he and I went with Dan to the hospital and got tests done and met with a consultant and, and uh, get the um the decision to be made about the operation. There you go. Which is a um, very dangerous operation, by the way. It was a very dangerous operation. I mean it was, yeah. it was told beforehand you know that uh, it could leave a vegetable. Um, but the only bit if he didn't do it he couldn't play football again he couldn't play again if he didn't have the operation if he had the operation it might not go right and he might be in a bad state so Darren had to make that big decision
2: do you think now that's that's a massive question, and it's obviously it's more surrounding sort of the issue of like concussion um, nowadays on the field? But do you think that role of club doctor really needs needs to be sort of respected a little bit more? Because um, you sort of see, you see players a lot now, and I'm, I'm not comparing it to Darren Jackson just wanting a few paracetamol, but you see them and they're like, no, it's fine, we can continue. But it's a cliche, but the doctor really does know best. Well, I think I think
3: I'm getting up. I think they're getting the grips with it. Actually, in fairness, I think they're working on it now. I think it's recognised now as being an issue. Um, the, the 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 heading thing, the perpetual heading of the ball, or the heavy ball as it used to be, not so much now. Um, and you know, the Billy McNeil's, it was a tragedy in the sense he really when he when he suffered late in life. Um, I, I think people are on it now. I think I think they're getting the grips with it, and I think I think you will find it'll be okay. They'll, they'll get a handle on it. But there is this big temptation, you know. Managers say, "Get back! What's wrong with you? Get, you know, give it a rub and get back out there." You know that that was the old-fashioned way. But I don't think that's going to work anymore. I think the, I think the incident with uh, Jose Mourinho and his lady doctor at Chelsea, I, I, I think that's actually worked uh, positively uh, because it was it, that, that was deemed at the time. To be such an issue and i think doctors get much more status now in clubs than they maybe had at that time and jack was part of time and then jack had, a, had his own gp practice and was, was working oh. every day um so i mean we, we're combining the two um and that's that's not happening at big clubs now they get no. on site all the time
2: Absolutely, or, um, women. Um, or women, or women, exactly. There we go. Mm-hmm. You jumped in. I never even thought of that. Um, <laughs> one final, one final question, Jock, because um, I'm conscious of time and you are a busy man. Um, what went wrong at Celtic this year? What, what's, what's, what do you see? What is where is the capitulation? totally and utterly came from. Well, Did you foresee well,
3: it? Well, I don't know. Uh, no. No, I didn't foresee I didn't it. I, 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 think, I think it's a very complicated situation and I think there's a, there a big tendency uh, for everyone to come up with snap answers and, and, and come up with and I don't think it's that easy. I think it's a complicated situation. I do think, I do think, though, I do think that the, the club uh, has become a victim of um, inadequate planning um, and not, not being ambitious enough while it was easy to win the league uh, they weren't ambitious enough in making themselves a, a european superpower that's what i would have thought was the correct way forward at that time um so what's going to on i really don't know um you could argue you look at some of the players and think well um is the quality there um i don't know i'm not sure uh the required quality i mean we're talking about to, to continue in a, a level and they need the hunger too they need that kind of and there's a, maybe has there been some complacency in some of the players I think it's going to be easy but I thought they'd win the 10 of the road without any bother I must confess I really didn't think it's not the And um, so uh, what's going on I don't know not internal I don't know uh, great sympathy for Neil Lennon though I'm not a Neil Lennon critic I, I have great sympathy for him I think he's had a, a very rough time uh, and I think an unfairly rough time um, and I would like to see him come out of it
2: and come through it well i think we all would um like you say you don't want anyone coming out of this ugly situation don't want to make it any worse um thank you so much for joining me today um it's been an absolute pleasure i could talk to you for a few more hours and hear a few more stories um but i will let you get back on and uh once again just thank you so much for joining me on soccer supernova